May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. People sometimes ask me what I miss about Scotland. Well, I don't miss the deep-fried Mars bars, and I don't miss the weather or the Greg's pies. I kind of miss the schoolwork that I used to do, two primary schools as chaplain and the grammar school across the road. And I used to love going there to meet with the fifth and sixth year religious studies students when we debated and wrestled with the great ethical religious issues. Not least when we talked about the problem of God and evil in the world. It was always a heated and an honest debate. They were passionate and articulate, and they pummeled away at me like rocky. Sometimes I was bruised and bloodied on the ropes, because they were real questions. It was challenging and provocative, often deeply felt, and coming from a genuine perplexity and a pain, absolutely grounded in what they saw in the world and what they had experienced in their own lives, the losses they'd known. So you see, it doesn't go away. The question is ever with us. Why do the wicked prosper? Why is the world not fairer? Why do innocent people suffer? Where is God when you need him? Why does he not do something? Do something to even things out, to make things right. If we were in charge, we would do it better. We would do it differently. And is a God who allows such imbalances and injustices to persist in our world actually worth believing in anyway? If God is all-powerful, why does he stand idly by while children die, disasters unfold, misery persists? You've asked those questions, and they're all good questions. Though to hear us, you'd think that no one had ever thought of them before. As if we were the first people to realise the cussedness and lopsidedness of things. As if the ones before us hadn't somehow noticed that everything was cockeyed and shockingly anarchic, with no steadying hand that you could see on the tiller. And yet, as we can see from Habakkuk's feelings of powerless outrage, his scream that fills the void, the question, the issue, the elephant in the room, that we all know is there, but fear to acknowledge suffering, injustice, the insanity of an Alice in Wonderland style of moral universe. Those questions have been around for a long, long time. And men and women of faith have been scratching their heads and wrenching their hearts over it since the very start, since faith began. And back then, they, no less than we, wanted nothing to do with pat answers and simplistic trite and pious cliches that required us to stand on our heads and contort our brains and close our eyes and put our fingers in our ears and take refuge in intellectual dishonesty. No, they wanted answers too, those ancient thinkers, those believers of long ago. They wanted answers. They demanded real answers to searing, searching, complex questions. Questions that went right to the very heart, 
to the very guts of their experience, their very existence. Where are you, God, when bad people do well? And all the meek inherit is a kick in the teeth. And the men of violence make utter fools of the peacemakers. Where are you, God? Have you gone deaf? Can you not hear the cry of the oppressed? I can hear it, can you not? Have you nothing to say to those people who walk carelessly all over your laws and spit in the face of your truth? There have been some answers offered, some simplistic solutions offered. There are whole religions based on a quite simple response to the problem of evil, but we may feel they raise more questions than they answer. Some suggest that there is, in fact, a balance at work, and that what you sow, you reap. And what you sow in this life, you reap next time around, when you make your return visit to this planet, in your reincarnated form, and all the bad stuff you built up in your past life hits you now. The stench of sewage swirls around your experience, and this is the way your bad karma that you so carelessly accumulated in your previous life comes back to haunt you. If only you'd been a better person back then, last time around, none of this misery would have landed on your head. But now you just have to grin and bear it and try and do better next time. When you look at the horror stories that unfold across the globe and recognise the part we all have to play in the economic injustices and the global crisis points, our responsibility for so much of the hurt and the unfairness, then next time around for any of us doesn't look too bright for most people in most places. Because for every Mother Teresa, there are 10,000 bullies Cheats, thieves, heartless, self-centred, pleasure-obsessed, immoral, greedy individuals, which would suggest a pretty bleak time ahead for them and for those who will share the world with them. If this is how it goes, if this is how it unfolds, that in our next incarnation you get what you deserve, we're all in trouble. But it's a worldview, a religious expression that requires largely that we also remember to leave the suffering people to deal with their grim situation on their own so that they can dig themselves out of this hole of their own making in the hope of a better deal next time around. And if we presume to give them a hand, if we reach out in compassion, we we blur the categories, we confuse the issue, best just leave them to sort things out themselves and make sure we don't end up crushed under the wheels of circumstance, broken by tragedy, overcome by disease in our next incarnation, because we made a hash of this one. Cause and effect, writ large across the pages of people's lives. Well, that's one explanation, one response. And certainly there lingers on in the minds of many people a kind of superstitious assumption that when bad things happen to them, when tragedy strikes or illness defeats their best efforts, then they must have done something to deserve that. Do you hear it all the time? Must have done something to deserve this. Their image of a judgmental God who finds reasons to dump stuff on people because we've failed in some way to measure up, to deliver 
on goodness or life or compassion. And therefore, the bad stuff happens to good people and it's simply divine retribution for some ancient or recent dereliction. That is a tragic, misleading, self-destructive notion. And the cry of innocent pain we find in the scriptures throughout the Old Testament, the Psalms, Habakkuk, the book of Job and elsewhere, and writ large in the New Testament, repudiates with passion that naive connection that people make between bad stuff happening to them and some failure of theirs being the root cause of that catastrophe. That isn't how it is, it's not what it's about, and it's a cruel burden for someone already broken to carry, to assume to themselves blame, failure, sin or weakness has brought this upon them, rocked and ruined their life. Because we know just from looking around that that's not the way it works. Countless career criminals enjoy an enviable lifestyle of wealth and comfort. Insane dictators down through the ages with hands bloodied from the most impossible cruelties done to innocent people settle back in their palaces and their villas in the mountains, waited on hand and foot with every conceivable luxury, die in their bed 102 years old, while down in the valleys... The heroes and the heroines eke out a pathetic living or lie bruised and broken on a cell floor. Good men and women who've lived lives of sacrifice and courage die in misery in the forgotten darkness of obscurity. So clearly it has nothing to do with good people being rewarded and bad people being punished. A significant watch of bad people have done very nicely in the world. Great swathes of good-hearted, ordinary folk have found their lives upended like a suitcase on a railway platform. Chaos and embarrassment and distress. However it works, this mysterious existence of ours, however God operates, it would seem on the face of it to have nothing to do with rewards and punishments in the here and now, not in any obvious way. We can draw some comfort from the inexorable logic of goodness, whereby no man or woman who chooses to live with integrity and by the highest standards of compassion and truth, no one who chooses to live that life is going to wish at the end of it that they hadn't, that they'd lived another life. They will know in their heart that they are choosing the right, truly human option. They'll have no regrets that they chose honesty over deceit, trust rather than betrayal, a life of quiet service and neighbourliness rather than an existence of luxurious, self-centred shallowness and excess. No one's making this truth up when we assert that living that life, living by those lights, brings an inner contentment, a sense of worth, A conviction that you've been on the right road, heading in the right direction. And okay, if you never got what the bad guys got. In truth, you didn't really want it if it meant compromising your principles, bringing your life into disrepute, turning your back on God and his way. You look back over the choices that you've made, the fundamental choice you made to be this kind of person, rather than that 
and you have no regrets. You might not have the yacht in Monaco, but you are who you are. And you have lived as you have lived by the values you have chosen. And there are no regrets. For the individual who has gained the whole world and is quite prepared to lose their own soul in the process will find if they peer into the darkness that instead of making something beautiful of themselves they have created something ugly, unworthy and foul. They have an external reward but there is an internal consequence. What can a man give in return for his soul? The Faustian bargain once struck has to be paid for and in the end it looks like a pretty raw deal. All this stuff for my soul all this selfishness for my soul that might make us feel a little bit better about some of the injustices endemic in our social and economic structures but it will by no means satisfy our concern about the wider implications of what can sometimes seem to be an absentee God or an indifferent God, or a just plain unfair God, nominally in charge of a disorganised and chaotic world. In the wider context, the world can sometimes just hit us right between the eyes in delinquent and destructive ways, and we join our voices with those of the Bible and wonder what's going on and why is God silent and why doesn't he do something to make things right, or at least better. Habakkuk says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Sounds very much like the world I live in. So it seems that not just from the standpoint of individual lives... The world seems cockeyed and crazy, but the very structures, the forces that move it, the energies that drive it, are not weighted in favour of goodness and truth and justice and peace. And the world God supposedly made whirls around in a chaotic maelstrom of violence and disaster, unfairness, thrashing around like a, a chain that's broken and it's flailing everywhere, causing hurt and damage. Where is God? Where is God? Who's supposed to be in control? What's he going to do about it? Nothing much if you live in Syria, it would seem. And if this is the case, what are those who believe in him supposed to do? Feel in order to cope with this mad, 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 mad world? Well, you're not going to like Habakkuk's answer. His answer in chapter 2 is this. Wait. Wait. I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and how he will answer my complaint. Then the Lord God answered me and said, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that a runner may read it. For there is still a vision of the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. 
Habakkuk says, have faith in God's intention and his ultimate capacity to right the wrongs. Be strong in your assurance that whatever happens, if you are living in the right way, you are living in the right way. Though it won't assure you of a safe passage through the storm, you will still know that to serve God and to love him and to live for him, regardless of whether there's a payoff or a benefit, you will still know that this is the truth to bet your life on. To stake your whole vision of who you are and what life is for and what matters and makes us human. In spite of the seeming insanities, injustices, miscarriages of justice, inequities that abound. In spite of the mystery and the frustrations and the questions. On this you can stake your life. That there is nothing out there that's bigger than God and his purpose. And if you are his and he is yours, wait and see. Wait and see. You're at the right place. You've made the best choice. Not the only choice, but the best choice. And if it seems a long time coming, keep believing in him and take comfort from the fact. From the key and crucial reality that you can detect, even in the midst of the alarms and confusions. That people who seem to know what life is for and how best to live it, who see the world in its beauty and magic and surprise, who form relationships of depth and loyalty, who value themselves and other people, who get out beyond the ramparts of their self-centeredness to embrace others and serve, they are the people who've got the hang of it whose faith in God gives substance and meaning to their life. The proud and the arrogant ones who push everyone else out of their way in their drive to success and accumulation and mindless pleasure-seeking, or who suffocate their soul with smart-aleck cynicism. They are the ones whose inner spirit is unsettled, asleep, or dead. Which do we want to be? Who do we want to be? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A moment of reflection.